Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. So, uh, I probably don't need to tell most of you that uh, tonight's event is close to our hearts. <laughs> uh, Eden Lepucki is a former Skylight staff member, um, and she has been missed ever since she uh, stopped working here, but luckily she comes to visit us pretty regularly. And uh, Eden is a graduate of uh, both Oberlin College and the Iowa Writers Workshop. She's taught at both of those institutions as well as through the UCLA Extension Program as well as private writing workshops here in LA. Um, and she's a blogger for The Millions, a regular blogger. And her fiction's been published in about a million places, uh, including <laughs> the uh, Los Angeles Times Magazine, Meridian, Narrative Magazine, and a, a ton of other places. And just uh, anecdotally, um, I'll say that I've been a huge fan of Eden's writing since uh, I read a story that she had in, I think it was the Los Angeles Review a couple years ago. And, you know, knowing Eden as a coworker, I'd expected her to be a very good writer, um, but I was just so impressed by the story. Um, and just with her uh, amazing way with words and her, you know, uh, very graceful prose. So um, I was so excited when this novella was published, and I just continue to be really, really impressed by Eden, um, and can't wait until we get to have the launch for her new, newly completed novel, um, which is incredibly exciting. So with that, I will let Eden take the stage, and thank you, everybody. Hello, can you hear me? Thank you, Liz, that was really nice. Um, when I'm in a pit of self-loathing, I'm gonna think about this moment. Um, so I'm gonna read just the first few pages of the novella, if you're not yet like me, um, and then I'm gonna read the first couple pages of the story, I Am the Lion Now, which is in the second edition of the novella. And I'm only gonna read for 16 minutes, <laughs> because I hate readings. So don't worry, I won't be like, this is gonna be 39 minutes. Ah, <laughs> uh, can you? I hate when that happens. Um, and also, before I begin, I want to thank Skylight Books and all of you for coming. And I want to thank my mom, Margaret, for cooking all these, making all these amazing desserts. So I would just like to. <laughs> They're on Costco trays, but that is homemade. Okay. How's the. Is that okay, everyone? Okay. If you're not yet like me, the same day I met Zachary, my landlord installed a new bathtub faucet. All new pipes, too. I'm sure you're thinking, oh, Joellen, what does this have to do with, every with anything? To which I reply, everything, baby, everything. You see, the faucet in the bathroom had been leaking for months, and when the landlord, that cheap bastard from Diamond Bar, finally fixed it, a pillowy silence fell over the apartment. No more ghost creek behind the bathroom wall. No more rusted faucet that drooled water, drought be damned. No more guilt, no more nuisance. At least I could check those off my list. I was so pleased, I drew a bath that afternoon. It didn't take me long to notice 
how great my tits looked in the shiny new faucet, the reflection rounded as if I were admiring myself in a brass doorknob. My breasts from this perspective were big, far bigger than they were normally. They were girlish and womanly at once, the nipples wide-eyed, like they just walked into their own surprise party. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. All right, oh, all right already, Joellen. I get it. But the emphasis here is important. You must know that I stood up from the tub just as a woman with large, beautiful breasts would. If I'd had an avatar, you could say I became her. If I were an actress and I had, had been asked to play a younger version of myself, in a flashback perhaps, my chest would have had to be bound and, would have, and it would have been very, very painful. You could say that. I imagined this new body as I stepped out of the bathroom and threw on some clothes. I twisted my hair into a sloppy bun, which seemed like something I might do. Women who wear serious bras, outfitted with wire and clasps big as fish hooks, can't be bothered with blow dryers. When I tie my hair into a knot, it dries so slowly. It's, it's how I wear it now, now that my body is changed. I think of it as a kind of training ground. By the time you're born, those rituals will be sucked away altogether, along with sleeping through the night and dining in dimly, dimly lit restaurants. Sometimes when I'm nervous, I can't breathe, so. <laughs> it was in this mood that I went to the corner coffee shop. I refused to say coffee house because it's nothing like a house. It's not welcoming at all. It's the kind of place with dumpy brown couches, a perpetually out of order bathroom, bad art on the walls, and a front patio littered with 19-year-olds who smoke cigarettes and braid suede belts to sell at Burning Man. <laughs> Once an insane man came in and threw the gumball machine across the room and the guy behind the counter just looked up from the milk steamer, bored. I hate it there and I go there all the time. Or I did. After Zachary, I couldn't go back. We were both in line that day, one of those afternoons where only one person is manning the place and suddenly everyone wants a complicated espresso drink or something blended or oh shit, two soprasada panini. We were waiting for so long, we were bound to start talking. He asked me what I was going to order. I was ahead of him in line. Drip coffee, I said, to go. Zachary nodded. A computer bag was slung across his chest. He eyed the room and I knew he was after a table. Go ahead, I told him. I'll keep your spot in line. He thanked me and rushed to deposit his bag on one of the two free tables. It was a black shoulder bag, dust clinging to its underside, and I thought, and I, 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 thought I saw an insignia on the front pocket. The bag had been free, I decided. It was something you might get for volunteering or attending a conference, a bag that shouldn't really be used, not seriously at least. Thanks, he said again, after he had deposited himself back in line. A word about Zachary. He's not ugly. This isn't about symmetry. His face is fine. <laughs> She's so awful sometimes. It's more that he is bland, invisible in the way certain men in their 30s are. He has brown hair and brown eyes. He's a little doughy in the belly. He is neither tall nor short, and his clothes are only distinct in that they're completely indistinct. The first time I saw him, he was wearing loose jeans and a striped polo shirt, the requisite sneakers. When a man dresses like a boy, turn and run. <laughs> that sounds like something a mother would say, doesn't it? 
The coffee shop boasts dozens of men like Zachary. They drink their coffee, they surf the internet, they work on their scripts, their cell phones waiting dumb on the table. Later, Zachary told me he went to the coffee shop occasionally, but if we'd crossed paths before, I don't know. Like I said, he was invisible until he wasn't. On any other day, our interaction would have ended there, but remember, I'd recently had my bathtub faucet replaced, which gave me big, lovely tits, even if they were only pretend. I'd practically glided into the place. I could have been wearing a bridal gown, or a sexy Halloween costume, or liquid eyeliner. I was pretty. I was reckless. I carried the conversation further. You're here to get some work done, I asked. He was looking for jobs. I don't have internet at home, he admitted. He'd been a temp for the last eight months, he said, since moving to LA from up north, where he was from and where he had also gone to college. He asked me what I did, and I said I was a freelance graphic designer. I wish it were a lie, but it isn't. I've been thinking about going back to school eventually, he said. Oh yeah, for what, I asked. He shrugged. Not sure yet. You'll figure it out, I said. When I got my coffee, he gestured at the table in his sad shoulder bag. You can join me if you want. He blushed. Oh, but you said to go, didn't you? I nodded. Thanks, though. The next moment, he was slipping his hand in his back pocket, pulling out a business card. If you want to, you know, get together. I realized he still hadn't placed his order. He was waiting for me to respond. This guy, I thought, he has no idea how invisible he is. Meanwhile, I'm invincible. It's funny how close those two words are. For a moment, I imagined myself whispering into his ear, why don't you just follow me home, big boy? <laughs> Sometimes I do this, imagine myself intimate with men I'm not attracted to, as if getting a loser laid would be a good deed on my part. <laughs> and maybe it would be. I'm not conceited. I'm not a bitch. I'm a woman. I've slept with men because I feel sorry for them, and if any other woman tells you differently, she's lying. <laughs> You'll do the same thing someday. I know what you're going to say. That's enough, Joellen. And also, go on, tell me more. <laughs> I took the business card from between his fingers and I smiled. The smile is the most meaningless of gestures because it, it can convey so much and so little. I wanted Zachary to hold out hope that I might contact him, but I also wanted that hope to be shot through with doubt, even shame, so that if I did call him, he would be humbled. Humility is the height requirement to ride this ride, so to speak. I don't mean to be crass. The point is, I smiled as I took his card and read it. It was plain white with his name, Zachary Haas, written in nondescript serif, serif font. Black ink, of course, and certainly not embossed. Predictably, his contact information was in the lower right-hand corner. I figured he must have designed it online or at one of those business card machines at drugstores. Do they still have those? Before exiting the coffee shop, coffee in hand, I smiled once again. Goodbye, Zachary Haas, I said, and glided to the door. If someone had asked me right then, do you plan on calling that guy? I would have said no and laughed big, my head thrown back. But I see now that there was something else tugging at me as I walked away from Zachary that day. A different intention, an opposite feeling. I won't call it desire. Thank you.
So you have to read the rest to find out what happens. <laughs> so now I'm going to read just the opening pages of the story, I Am the Lion Now. I had to pick something, a story to go with the novella for the second edition, so I ended up picking something that had a very different point of view, but there's some weird similarities between the stories, so maybe you can pick up on some of them if you're listening closely. So I Am the Lion Now. Margaret took a bath, not my mom. I just took the name. I forgot that that's my mom's name. And other people think it's weird, but I don't think of her as Margaret. It's just mom, so. Anyway. Margaret took a bath. The tub, like all tubs and apartments worth living in, was grimy. She, she had scrubbed it many times, but the porcelain remained gray and streaked with rust around the drain. She didn't mind. She also kissed dogs on the mouth, didn't wash her fruit, let the squeamish suffer their fear, let them live without really living. Margaret was safe in her risk-taking. In the kitchen, Toby baked a cake, his second. The first one had burned. Margaret had assumed he'd forgotten to turn on the timer, but this was deliberate. He'd wanted to have sex more than he wanted to eat cake, and he knew that if the timer went, went off in the middle, they would stop to handle it. They were married, and passion was not greater than cake. But they didn't end up having sex, because there were dishes to wash, because they were tired. They were always tired now that the baby was on the way, and the cake burned anyway. Toby felt silly and a little disappointed by his carelessness. The average married couple in Los Angeles has sex once a week. The number increases among newlyweds and decreases considerably among those with children. Margaret and Toby, married four years together for six, were not doing badly. Margaret kept a tally of their lovemaking in her checkbook. Toby wasn't aware of the tally, wasn't aware that their average was higher than the norm during the fall and lower in the summer, bikini wax or not. Heat wasn't sexy. Margaret sometimes imagined a future biographer, their biographer, celebrating the discovery of this diligent record. <laughs> she didn't realize that no one was recording, the was recording the more important matters. Toby's baking, for instance, that he was making a second cake two hours after the first, simply because his wife had a craving. In the bathroom, a candle next to the sink glowed weakly, a gesture of light. Margaret lay in the tub with her eyes closed, the book she had brought into the room admonished nearby. It was a turgid novel, too challenging to read in water. Margaret longed for a tabloid, all those pregnant actresses. But I am worth it, whispered the book. Because the smell of burnt food lingers, Toby had opened the front door and all the windows. As he'd begun to stir the second batch of dry ingredients, Margaret had said, I feel fat, I'm going to take a bath. You're not fat, Toby had said. You're pregnant. My arms aren't, she said. <laughs> Margaret was three and a half months along. She'd recently purchased a maternity wardrobe, even though she didn't need it quite yet. Toby found the smock dresses and the shirts like parachutes sexy. For some reason, taking a bath temporary, temporarily cleansed his wife of any physical self-loathing. In water, she was weightless, and afterwards, she put on the same extra-large t-shirt, its size dwarfing her, making her feel thin. The baby inside her, a boy, though neither Toby nor Margaret knew this yet, or wanted to, liked the sound of the running faucet and the shaking and groan of the pipes. He heard everything and tucked the information like loose change into his forming brain. 
The sound was like a handful of paper clips scattering across the hardwood floor, a scampering. From the kitchen, Toby yelled, holy fucking shit. Margaret stood up, feet in bathwater. What was that, she called, her ear toward the door. She heard the rustling of paper bags, the two next to the garbage used for recycling. Are you okay, she yelled. The baby moved, but he was too small for Margaret to notice. There's a fucking rat in here, Toby cried. Boyish cowardice tugged at the edge of his voice. Margaret heard a kitchen, door, kitchen chair slide across the floor, and she imagined Toby standing on it. She grabbed her towel from the rack, pulling it so strongly that it hit the candle, tipping it over onto the book. The book caught fire. Fire, she yelled. Possum, Toby yelled. He hadn't heard his wife in the bathroom. The possum, a baby, ran back and forth across the kitchen, butting its head against the cabinets in the fridge. It did look like a rat, but an obese one, pink-eyed, with that same root vegetable tail. The book's pages went first, curling black with the lick of fire, then disintegrating. The covers were hardbound and thus more stubborn, but it didn't take long for the flames to, uncover, to cover the entire book, eating it. The room turned orange with the glow, and Margaret thought first of that Ray Bradbury novel, then of the Nazis, then of death, then of the first cake which had also burned, then of the baby, oh not my baby, then of death again. As the possum ran for the living room, Toby realized what had happened. Abandoned by its mother, the animal needed food, and the burnt cake smell had been inviting. A coyote might be next in the hunger parade, which might come skulking through the front door, which was still open. The possum ran behind the couch. Food, food, food! Margaret plunged her towel into the tub of water, and once it was soaked through, flung it over the flames, suffocating them. The book stopped burning. Where was Toby? Fire, she yelled again, <laughs> testing him. Toby smelled the fire just as he heard Margaret's call. Burnt book wasn't the same as burnt cake. At seven years old, he and his brothers had thrown a lit, of, lit match to a pile of their mother's collection of romance novels. The flames left, leapt from the paperbacks to a nearby bush, swallowing it with a roar of heat. Later, when the firefighters were leaving, one of them said to him, be careful there, Moses. And Toby had nodded, confused. Who is this Moses? Toby wasn't thinking of this as he ran for the bathroom, only of his actions, the jumping off of the chair, the pushing in of the bathroom door, the reaching out for Margaret, who was naked and dousing something charred in the sink. The breathlessness of, are you all right, babe? What happened? Margaret laughed. Oops, she said. Guess I won't be reading this. All crises, once averted, become jokes. Did you burn yourself? I'm fine, I'm fine. Toby kissed his wife on the mouth and on the belly. There's a small beast in the living room. The timer shrilled. Cake! Come quick, Toby said, already out of the bathroom. I might contract rabies. Thank you. So, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> this is my first solo reading. This is so cool. <laughs> does anybody have any questions? Ask me anything. Cecil. Um, it seems as though you've got a theme of baths 
<laughs> Can you tell me uh, uh, where that comes from and why do you find the bath as an interesting setting? Well, I, I know this is actually probably bad considering the water situation, but I take a bath every night. Unless it's very, very hot, but then I'll take a cold bath. Um, so I think I just spend a lot of time bathing. I just think it's a really wonderful ritual, and I need it every night to kind of relax. I do a lot of thinking in the bath, probably about writing. Um, a friend pointed out to me that the bath in the, f in the novella makes sense considering bath, sort of the womb imagery. And another friend had pointed out other womb imagery and pregnancy imagery in the story, which I just sort of came out naturally. So there you have it. I should probably get a better imagination. I think there's a bath in every single thing I write. <laughs> Other? Yes, sir? Um, if you're not yet like me. The title, Dina, my editor, is here, and we're laughing because <laughs> I, I usually come up with my titles really quickly. They just sort of come to me probably in page three or so. Um, I, the, the novella was called um, Imagine Land for a while because was, there was a, a scene that refers to it. And we decided that that wasn't that exciting of a title or it, made, it, made, it sounded like Fantasyland or Disneyland, which wasn't really what we were going for. And I think Dina actually came up with the title. There's a part where she says, if you're not yet like me in this way, you will be. And since it's a narrator speaking to her, unborn child and it's kind of cautionary tale also a confession it's sort of you know and mothers sort of and I think parents sort of talk to their children that way sometimes so it felt fitting in that way too but it wasn't mine to begin with the sentence was mine the title was somebody else's Dina's genius yes ma'am Uh, yeah, actually, Joellen's voice was the only thing that ha was happening at the beginning. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, but her voice came very, very naturally. And often, I like writing in the first person because I really like to inhabit the character's language and see how the language leads me to the story. Um, so her voice was the easiest thing. It, was, it really only became a challenge at the end, um, where I was trying to keep her barbed quality while also revealing her vulnerability. But it came right away. It was my first entry. So. Emily. Was it always a novella, or did it start as a short story, like a or a novel? Um, actually, I had, I had coffee with Kalen. He's somewhere around here who has a book out with Flatman Crooked called We're Getting On, and we were talking, and they said he said Flatman Crooked is looking for novellas. So I actually wrote. I started writing something that I was like, okay, I'm going to write a novella, and I knew that it could. The, the term was really expansive, especially for them. It could be anywhere from. 28 pages to, you know, 90 pages if I wanted it. So I started writing something, and I wrote about three pages, and I was like, oh, that's the end. So I ended up writing, like, a piece of flash fiction or something. It's called Pretzel Girl that was in five chapters online. So then I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do next. So then I just started, I got Joellen's voice in my head and started writing. So it always was a novella, um, and because I knew I could go for as long as I wanted to go, I had a lot more fun. And there's a couple weird sort of side stories and tangents and flashbacks um, that I just sort of let myself go on and see what happened in them. So it was always going to be a long piece. Nick? Hi. Um, through the revision process, I'm wondering if the difference between a first draft and what we've heard is radically different, or is your revision more kind of polishing across? Um, 
the first page or so is probably almost exactly the same from what I wrote originally. But what happened a lot in the revision was when I first wrote it, the fact that she's talking to her unborn child was something that I didn't realize she was doing until about midway through. I got to that line, that sounds like something a mother would say, and I thought, oh, is, is that who she's talking to? Because at first I had no idea. Um, and I had decided around that point that I was going to have that as a reveal, that the audience was the baby, was like the final twist. But that really didn't work. Um, so a couple of later drafts brought the baby in earlier. The mo most of the drafts were done on the ending, the last like five, t five to ten pages. Just I rewrote the ending probably, I don't know, Dina, four times maybe, like start to finish. But the, the basic shell of it was there to begin with in my first draft, beyond little things or adding things. But, yes. I got here a few minutes late, so I apologize for mentioning this, but Jamie, I'll give you your $5 after the reading. <laughs> I do teach. I teach at UCLA Extension. Um, I'm teaching right now an advanced story class, and next quarter I teach uh, creative writing colon the short story, which is a beginning class. Um, and I also teach privately. I have a business called Writing Workshops LA. Um, and I teach private small workshops there. But yeah, workshops LA. Yeah, write that down. Yeah, and actually really I loved, I'm kind of a showboat, I don't know if you, but I, I find if I just had to write all day and be alone, I would go crazy and I really love the interaction with students and the discourse and the fact that I'm, I feel like if I, I couldn't be a teacher, a, writer, a teacher of writing and not write and so I love that it kind of keeps me honest. I really love that too. Yeah, uh, somebody called it a second-person story, and I was like, well, is it? But it's one of those, sometimes when I teach point of view, I'm like, there's, there's the first person, third person, all the basics, and then there's the second person, and then sometimes there's that first person, second person. So I don't really know what, what would that be called. I really focused on it being the first person, but I, she was modeled a little bit after um, Russell Banks's uh, narrator in Sarah Cole, A Type of Love Story, which is about a man who dates the ugliest woman in the world and he's very handsome. And he sort of is very performative and he actually starts the story, I think it's told in both third and first. So the first person narrator is suddenly talking about himself in the third person. And I was really interested in how a first person narrator can perform their own stories. Um, so that came into play when I thought about who she was addressing and how the second person when you think, when you, if you're recording something or you're writing in a diary and you know there's somebody who's going to read it or who the witness is changes how you tell the story. So that affected how the story got written a little bit. Any other questions? Oh, hello. Um, how long did this novella take you to write, including all the editing and the rewriting and Um... I always feel like after you finish something, you like create this narrative. It's like the story and the story of how the story was written. Um, I think I it probably took about a month or so to write the first draft, um, and then probably a couple months of revision. But it wasn't continual, continuous. Um, so probably like four months in all. But it wasn't. I wasn't working on it every day or consistently. Other projects involved. Yes. Do you 
have a regular discipline as a writer? Like, do you have a certain pattern that you do, or do you have a certain pattern you don't do? My husband was like, they're going to ask you about your writing ritual. <laughs> I'm on a writing vacation right now, so I haven't written for like two weeks. Um, I, I don't. I, in general, I try to write between 9 and noon because I have a lot of teaching, so I have to spend the entire afternoon usually planning for classes and if I want to read a book or something, and then I teach at night. So really the mornings are my, I created a life so that I have the mornings to write. Um, but I'm not a person that has a specific word count or even a specific number of hours that I need to sit down. Um, but that's generally, I try not to work, I don't, I'm not like Stephen King who writes seven days a week and on his birthday, I'm like, it's Sunday, I am not writing today. Um, and I also really value time, I mean, this could be a cop-out as well, but I value very much time away from writing because I think a lot of time I need to ponder or think about things, like I'm working on a new book now and I have about 100 pages and I'm at a big crossroads, so I just don't want to just write something to write something, so that's partially why I'm on my little vacation. But, so I, I guess I do have some kind of ritual, but it's not, you know, a specific, it's not super specific. It allows me to, you know, watch Law & Order SVU if, the, if I feel the need. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. It was really great to have you all. Thank you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.